Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Today's lesson is Pathfinder 310, Creating Good Villains. This is part of our 300 series covering advanced topics. And today we have with us a adjunct professor, Kyle Ferguson from Move TV. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. I believe I was on episode 207, was it? 93 episodes ago? Mm-hmm, romance. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> well, thank you. It's a little bit tricky because this is like a school. There's like 201, 202. It hasn't been 100 episodes. But you don't need to give that away. <laughs> that could be... Okay, I, yes, thank you. We've actually we just reached our 200. I'm already impressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, we loved you on that episode, and we're so glad you're coming back on for this episode. I remember listening to you. You're a PC and an actual play podcast, and I remember hearing you talk about how you had some thoughts about villains, so I thought this would be the perfect episode to have you on. Yeah, it's certainly been quite the journey in the last couple of years on villains, right? We've almost gone full TV in our movies. Things are so complicated now. Every villain is multifaceted, and you kind of like them a little bit, but not all of them. Did you miss the days of Darth Vader? Just, he just chokes people. He's a bad guy. <laughs> right? He's just a bad guy. He kills planets. Can we just kill him? We need to kill him. It got so complex somewhere along the way. Then the other movies came and ruined it, and they gave him a backstory. I don't care. I didn't need any of that. I didn't need to know Anakin built C-3PO. <laughs> oh, no. He's, he is like a quintessential badass villain, and it's very much that stoicness. So the more you build on that, just like a Aliens, the more you add to the lore, the less wild the creature is. Sure, absolutely. So in today's episode, we're covering a, a large topic. Villains are a very large topic and antagonists at large. So we're going to sort of hone in and focus primarily on the GM's perspective, creating good villains so that you can use them in the story. Not so much all the storytelling tips about how to create interesting and dynamic storylines with your villains. So we're going to talk about traits of villains to glean a little bit of information off of that for you to apply to your own villains. We'll be mentioning a lot of villains here, but we won't go into in depth about them. We're going to mention the Joker. We could spend a whole episode. So dissecting a why Joker's a good villain, but we're going to try to bring something out from that. We're going to talk about how to use the villains, and then we'll finish up with some of our personal stories with good villains. So let's start off with our traits. A lot of the stuff we talked about in the character creation episode apply here to make your villain interesting, different quirks and different traits like that. But let's take a look at different traits and aspects your villain can have, and you can like mix and match these to make your own villain. These are in no order. These are in the categorical order we just came up with when we were creating up the notes. So the first one we came up with is the clearly evil villain. This is the Nazis. This is the serial murder. And one of the examples I put down on here was Carnage. Carnage from Spider-Man. He's literally just a serial murderer that got better tools to kill people with. He's a bad guy. Clearly evil is a great trait to have in villains. You don't always want to have that gray area and have people argue about, well, should we stop this guy? Is it kind of our side? Having clearly evil things and a very well-defined thing for your players to stand up against is a good tool to have. There's a great feature for this kind of subclass of villain where they're already dead or they're somehow removed so far from society that their desire to take over the world isn't so Captain America. It's more, I have already experienced death. I wish to unleash that on the universe. Why not? (laughs) And a character even like Ramsay Bolton from Game of Thrones is a bastard, is removed from the world of lineage, and therefore can be the worst person on Earth because it really doesn't matter to him. What are the consequences for an undead lich, right? What does he care? 
in the first season of Trailblazers, the Lich was the first villain, and it was because I had new players, and so I wanted to introduce them into a basic villain. He's und- he's a necromancer. Do you need to say anything more before you instantly have in your mind, oh, he must be a bad guy? You can try to argue that, hey, necromancers aren't a bad guy, and you can create some whole story about prejudice and how just because I'm a necromancer, you think I'm bad, blah, 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 but they are very easily lend themselves to, I'm just a bad guy because I raised people back from the dead against their will. I'm a skeleton. Look at me. Look at my face. The great thing about Liches, too, is they live so long so whatever plan they're enacting feels weighted and so almost Mm -hmm. like biblical and they get to use that language too when they enact their plans sure listen they've they've had 300 years to go through the dictionary check their hands for what they wrote down 300 years ago for their speech (laughs) i can't understand my handwriting (laughs) the next trait i want to go over is mysterious this is the g-man from half-life if you ever played that you don't know really know exactly what he's doing but you know it's bad and you know it's some grand scheme and he's manipulating people an example i like to give is the man in the yellow suit from tuck everlasting sort of famous young adult novel and the man in the yellow suit is mysterious because we don't really know why he's there we just know he's tracking the protagonists we never even learned his name even to the end of the book they just call him the man in the yellow suit because he never gives his name. At the very end, you may learn what his motivations were, like we did with the man in the yellow suit. But up until then, it's just like, why is he after us? What is he doing? This is a tough one. But the one I came up with was the happy mask salesman from Anjora's Mask, where he really kind of sets the mystery and the clock tower and everything from then on out. You meet him like he's one of the first people you interact with in the story. He's really unhinged and is like, as a child, I was kind of confused. I was like, what is... His deal, I don't really understand what he's telling me. Is he angry with me? Is he trying to help me? There's definitely some like subtle veiled threats in there. He's like, oh, and you'll get my mask back. You will get my mask back and then I'll help you out. But you will get my mask back by the third day. And the day. smile and the music going, it's just perfect. There, there's almost like a another version of him in The Witcher 3 with the Master of Mirrors. I don't know much about him. You have to tell me about him. You should play Witcher 3. I'll just stop there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, we won't, we won't ruin it. What I like about these guys is there's just something about not getting an answer. We don't get so much of an answer for Happy Mask Salesman. He's obviously not just a normal person. There's something else about him. And I like, it's a sort of seminal moment for me in storytelling when it was when I learned leave those empty spaces for people to fill in themselves. How much ownership do you get in a game when your players fill in their own blanks? I actually watched yesterday Forbidden Planet for the first time ever. And a big feature of that movie and its big sci-fi MGM glory is the monster is invisible. And what a great feature of that time period to just remove what would have obviously been very cheesy effects. (laughs) Right. Oh no, he's claymation. <laughs> he moves. He is otherworldly. I can't comprehend. Well, let's move on to the next one. The antithesis. This is the Joker example. The Joker being the opposite to Batman. Agent Smith is the opposite to Neo. And that's why their fights are so interesting. That's why their whole conflict is so interesting. I mean, you, we could quote line after line that Joker says about this. You complete me. His whole idea was that I exist because you make it fun to exist. Yeah, it's not necessarily the whole you made me kind of track. That's more of a almost a revenge thing. But immediately thought of the Joker. Agent Smith is perhaps almost too far into this where the punches are connecting midair. <laughs> and they, don't they punch... 
<laughs> the yeah, rain don't they punch each other's what? fists because they're so evenly matched? Like it's <laughs> it gets pretty cheesy. And, and I came up with a cheesy one too. Caster Troy from Face Off, opposite. Uh, <laughs> was that was that Nick Cage or was that John Travolta? The answer is yes, Christian. No, that was yeah Nick Cage, and he was the opposite before he climbed inside of John Travolta's body. <laughs> you know. We're swapping faces and apparently body hair, weight, build. Yeah, everything. it doesn't work well. But Caster Troy is a is a marvel of cinematography. Sure, he's he's like a yeah. comic book villain in yeah. himself. This is really a good one, in my humble opinion, to use in stories when you really want to make a point to your players. Because you can still have him like the Joker is bad. We all know this. There's not a lot of people arguing that, that he's right in anything he's doing or that he's on the right side of history. But you're making a point to your players that even though this is absolutely antithesis, maybe look at yourself. Wow, I see myself reflected in him. I see traits of myself in the villain. I need to fix myself. Oh, have you guys ever done this with a full party in a D&D game where like you have a basically Gary party for your Ash <laughs> party and everything your party does wrong or... <laughs> If they skip quests, the other group does them and actually becomes the heroes or the villains. No, but oh my goodness, do I want to do this right now? It's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's a lot. It was, I had a group called the Marching Brigands was sort of the rival adventuring party that would take all the jobs my group would turn down. And they became famous, more famous than the original group. It was very much, uh, maybe it would even work better in organization, right? Another feature we have coming up here, the uh, IOI kind of thing where they're so corporate these are my party's actually fighting the big bad but that's hidden that's that's the secret Ooh, mm. no one believes them the reapers are coming whereas these guys are doing all like the sure. helping old ladies across the street and making all the money i absolutely want I, i'm gonna gotta crib this from you because that's great i gotta do that well, one of my gms <laughs> did that once it was kind of like an undead necromantic version of our party but when like when we found out about it, we just went and fought them and they ended up being actually kind of weak mechanically so we just kind of beat the <laughs> crap out of them <laughs> except oh, one of no. them was incredibly oh, strong and we, we just returned to that party member was like wow you should you should never turn evil like you're really tough like don't do that join up join up <laughs> let me guess he was a gunslinger christian no it wasn't caleb me, me and christian had an argument caleb had an argument and a misunderstanding of my point <laughs> is what happened oh. See, this is the antithesis right here. <laughs> and now Kyle just stands awkwardly in the corner for the next five minutes. So we're like actually yelling at each other and angry. And he's like, what is this the critical inflating? role features? The gunslinger feats and all that have been coming out? No, no. We just did an episode of our own about the gunslinger. <laughs> oh, OK, OK. Because my group's actually been arguing about gunslinger. We're in a very Mad Maxi kind of universe. And critical role is releasing custom feats and classes for guns, but we don't know if we should use them or not, and that's kind of been the debate in our group. They're coming out halfway through is the problem. What edition are you guys playing? Fifth with? edition. Gotcha. I think the antithesis is kind of easy to implement in a high fantasy setting, if only because of the existence of different schools of thoughts and different deities and pathos and things like that, because you can have someone who truly believes something that is completely antithetical to the party, and it be a completely valid construct of the story. It's a bit harder to do this in, say, a simulationist kind of mimicking real world kind of setting because humans only can believe so many things. We're not that complex, but in a high fantasy setting, you could have someone worship Rovagug or some great deity of destruction, and their tenets to them are true and they're real and they are antithetical to the party. I think a lot of people, if they want to make a political statement, this could be a good method for that. One of my favorites is the otherworldly, the incomprehensible. This is the Cthulhu. If anyone's listening to anything I've done, I involved the Slender Man. These are things that you just can't comprehend. These are the villains that are villains because they stepped on the anthill. I mean, when you walk down the street, you didn't, you didn't 
think about that anthill, what devastation you're going to do when you stepped on it. Cthulhu didn't even recognize there was a city there. He was just on his way through because some idiot summoned him in some dark ritual. You can't comprehend him. The Slender Man's so on point where it's like, you can't comprehend him. You can't even look at him. Get it, guys? Oh, oh, oh. It's, it, it could be done a little cheesy, but I love this. This is this is a huge point of inspiration for me when I like to make villains. This is your aliens from the movie Signs. Just put water somewhere and you'll be okay. I said creating good villains, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, no, it's not the zombies that are the threat. It's man. Oh. <laughs> the look on Kyle's face. Disgusted at that. Nah, man, no. Am I real? I can't take that. Uh, yeah, you're real. You're we're, we're real as we all want to be. We're on a rock flying through space. Whatever, man. Just Can go you with ask it. the question? <laughs> <laughs> you have Reapers on here, though, which are such a great example of this. And one of the, the real magic moments about otherworldly villains is that moment where the heroes are incomprehensible to them. And a great example of this is Dormammu in the recent Doctor Strange movies. And he just doesn't understand why a human would put up such a fight or even in that case what he's wielding the time stone in a sense mm-hmm. I, I mean I, like the whole demon the, the language though i think this is really about language it's about that mm. you know crash against me and you will break i am the cosmic ocean kind of lines sure. that just make you go oh and, and you just want to listen there's so many movies where they just sit around talking everyone just stands there talking at mm. one another but this sort of villain and world lends itself to those moments that prothean moment where you finally get to the computer and you're just sitting there pressing the button saying tell me more but it's the most (laughs) thrilling part of mass effect one because finally you have some answers i think you made a good point with communication and it can go the other way where if you can't talk with something you almost never be able to possibly understand it you can't have a conversation with the martians from war of the worlds you're just at war because they decided that they're going to be at war I heavily recommend anybody who enjoys this sort of villainy check out Abhorson. It's Garth Nix. And it's it's it was made during the the sort of teen book madness of Twilight and everything else. So it has a couple of like, wait, what's going on? Everyone everyone wants to date kind of thing going on. But it's basically good necromancers versus bad necromancers. And it's really awesome because things are coming back from death and they don't give a care and they're not even part of this world anymore. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. When you, when, you, when you take that sticking point out of the story, you get to tell something different. And there are the, the basically the two halves of this. You have the Cthulhu-level ones that don't communicate with all. They're just intangible, essentially. And then you have the ones that are like the Reapers and that they have to communicate. If you want to implement them, you basically need to have a writing minor. Don't try to represent this if you don't have a, <laughs> a clever monologue to give A lot them. of it helps when you think of the alien mindset. Uh, like, a lot of people talk about the the pros and cons of alignment one of the pros is when you look at demons and they're all evil objectively that's rules is written they're just evil then you as a gm have to put yourself in a mindset okay whenever i play a a demon what makes it so that every one of that species is evil that's an alien concept because humans aren't like that an existing one already in the pathfinder universe would be the mothmen which are analogous to the Mothman legend of our world, but they operate in a very mysterious, they they warp the world, they cause what seem to be bad events to happen, but there's just this line about them and that they ultimately, they have their own goals. They're trying to achieve some end, and we don't believe they want to end the world. We don't know exactly what that is. So if you want to do something that is already made and try fitting this into your world, you can look at the Mothman enemy. I think it's in Bishiri 2 or 3. You want to hear something really weird? Yeah, always. Summon Monster 6, you can summon Mothman. There you go. You could be the incomprehensible one. (laughs) Hmm. 
What? <laughs> why? Why is this a thing? <laughs> Let's move on to the next one. Morally gray. This is the guy that is misunderstood. He has the same goals, just sort of different methods in many ways. This is one of my tropes. Maybe people are like, oh, Caleb's made another villain that's morally gray. Look at that. That's refreshing. Two-Face has always been a big inspiration for me. And in my humble opinion, I think it's very rare, if ever, if Two-Face is done right because he's so comic-y. I like the idea of some of of the actual duality and seeing those to, to tell something about ourselves. When you have the morally gray person, you ask yourself, am I actually going to stick my sword through his gut? Because he's making a lot of really good points. And if you do this kind of villain really, really well, I've seen people turn on parties because they got convinced by the villain. You know what? Maybe we are the villains. What have we been doing? Valerian from season one was the embodiment of this. I try to make a point with each of my games, and one of my points in season one was about morally gray and, and, and even people who have a strict moral code. Like one of the players played a paladin who was a Christian. He had a very strict outline moral code that wasn't very confusing, and still he was confused at certain points in the campaign because of points that the villain like Valerian brought up. You do have to be careful over-utilizing morally gray. I think it is a powerful type of villain. I don't think they're necessarily difficult to write, granted that you have a well-written universe you're in. I think most of our naturalized, most things are in a more morally gray area, but it does get very tiresome if you're always in morally gray situations where it can really be wishy-washy. I can really go one way or the other. Your players will get burned out if you overutilize this. But some really cool villains are morally gray. You think of the Red Hood. He's like, Batman, you're just, you're not killing people and they're doing it again. At least I kill the worst and I control the others. Yeah, there's still drugs being dealt, but they're under my watch. I make sure they don't go to schools. I make sure they don't go to kids. Yada, yada, yada. Have you all heard this stuff before? But the Red Hood was a compelling villain, in my opinion. What about something like Ultron? I mean, that that has a real kind of characterization of a child and not understanding the world around them. And that makes them so dangerous. But I don't think it's necessarily morally gray because like, he, he wants to save the world faster than Tony Stark wants to by kind of destroying right. it. Coming to you know the wrong conclusions based on the information. Well, we have the same goal. It's just that you're, you're dumb and human and I've got this better way. Right. The Skynet sort of thing where it's just like, well, it's easier to just destroy everything. Shut yeah, up. Yeah. Why are we trying not to nuke control? You know what? Everyone nuke everybody. Done. Mission accomplished. No, but Ultron, the morally gray that comes in there is like there was a reason that you had... Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver ally with him. There was something enticing about him. To make it a really good morally gray villain, in my humble opinion, is you got to have something enticing about the way he's thinking to at least somebody else. Somebody who is, like, good. We don't think of Quicksilver as a villain very much, I don't think. Let's talk about sympathetic villains. I think Mr. Freeze is one of the quintessential sympathetic villains had something terrible happen to him, so you know why he's doing what he's doing. He's reacting in the wrong way. You shouldn't now kill other people's wives. You're now inflicting the same pain you had on you, but who can argue with the guy that says, I'm in so much pain, I just need to make others feel this way. Or now I don't even care what others feel as I have my heart frozen. It seems like a classic one of these is the werewolf who doesn't want to hurt his friends. And they're gone, get out of here! Or the lizard from Spider-Man, where they kind of come to terms with who they are. Maybe even they can control it eventually and become a good guy. But there's always that, go, go, I'm not worth it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what did that really well was Batman Beyond. I think maybe there was a movie or a couple of episodes where Mr. Freeze came back. And it was the whole, I'm going to save you. And he just like nicks the whole thing. He just like made a wall and goes, no, you're not. Bye. 
get out of here. I want to die. I like that subversion of the normal trope. Batman, like, if you want to graduate from middle school villains, Batman Beyond's not a bad way to mix up your brain a little bit. Well, yeah, like, a lot of people would say that the rogues gallery is what makes Batman an interesting comic book and storyline, so their villains are great examples. They just pumped it up to 11 with Batman Beyond, and it was really kind of twisted of a mm-hmm. show. Bane's in there, crippled in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're looking for a line that'll help you create a sympathetic villain, is make the villain and the hero after the same goal, and that often will start you on the right path to making a sympathetic villain. And Freeze's introduction in the animated series, he wanted to bring someone to justice using unjust ways. Batman's doing the same thing and ends up at the end of the episode, he brings that same person to justice just in a better way. They're both after that same goal. Mentioning Undertale in a sympathy trait is kind of cheating, but basically the majority of quote-unquote villains in Undertale would be listed as sympathetic, but mostly the quote-unquote main villain, King Asgore. You're a fish out of water. He wants to kill humans. You end up understanding why, what he's lost through being in the underground and being labeled as a monster and this kingdom he rules being sequestered to some other land, you kind of understand why he wants to go through with the actions he wants to go through with. Another example from Game of Thrones is the Sandor Kagan, the, the hound. He's one of those ones that haunts you at night because you want him to keep doing the right thing and you want him to become the good guy, but he keeps slipping back into... Well, maybe even murderous rage. But when you can compel your players to, like, root for him to please just make the right decision and see their hearts break when he doesn't, you're like, no, you were so close and now I have to kill you. Last thing I wanted was to kill you. Mastermind, the person pulling all the strings. I think Moriarty is the quintessential example of this. Your Lex Luthers, your Kaiser Sozes. Yeah, Lex Luthor was the first one that came to my mind. Uh, just because he's always a force, and he's one of the most understandable forces in Superman, maybe because things have gone to space, and he just wants things, money or power, or all right. achievable villain villain things. Could Lex Luthor also have a spot of antithesis in him? Because he just truly believes that like Superman shouldn't be a construct that humans believe in. Definitely. There's a rant that, um, uh, who made Rick and Morty? Um, Dan Harmon. There's a rant that Dan Harmon does. I recommend you look up. It's like a five-minute short little video, but it's amazing. <laughs> like Suther's mindset of he's just mad at, at Superman because he didn't have to earn. He's like, humans are crappy people, and you didn't have to earn this. I had to earn this. You were born amazing. I had to make myself amazing. So many of those are, like, really well-written. Uh, Moriarty, uh, Ozymandias from Watchmen, and they have these beautiful speeches where, you know, tragically, maybe they finally completed their objective and they knew it was dark, but it was for the good of the universe. I think one of the worst written ones, if you want to say it that way, perhaps the easiest to steal stylistically is Gul'dan from World of Warcraft, who doesn't actually say or do anything really all that complicated, but every time someone turns around, there's a nice little good and I I knew it, <laughs> and of course, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and if you want to, if you want to run a villain like this, just steal Gul'dan. It's so easy. They're like, "Did you mean to burn down the hospital? Did you?" You just go, "Yes." <laughs> Whatever the characters believe, just let them go. Let them believe that you are so genius in your plans. When actually, uh, that was something you made up twenty minutes before the game, and they just. They loved it. Sure, and they want to incorporate sure. it into the main story. Sweet, guys. I'm down for it. There's so many times when your players can make you a better storyteller. <laughs> yes, in fact, I did plan. And it was the villain's <laughs> plan. 
there's something very exciting about having that villain where when your players put it together and they know it, but then they can't stop it. And it's like, well, what do we do? We can't just, Lex Luthor ends up becoming president. Like he, he pulls the wool of everyone's eyes, but we see it. There was this like level two campaign went on to, you know, up to level seven, 13 beyond. Uh, at one point they were, they were being told about these magical boots that could move real fast and were black and had these certain kinds of stripes. And it so happened that I happened to, by accident, describe a character at level two wearing boots sort of like that. And the entire group was like, oh, Kyle's a genius. He hid the, he hid the seeds in episode two for episode million. And, yes, I did. Of course I did. Entirely on purpose. I was afraid you wouldn't yes. notice. <laughs> so they all went running back to the original town to find that guy, and it was perfect. Were they the boots, though? Did, did you put another layer oh, twist on I it? I made it. I made them the boots. Those boots got picked up from some dungeon in some other universe and just dropped in the real world level two area. Hey, guys, just a, a five-minute break real quick. I got to make a <laughs> There is the overwhelming and the unstoppable. This is the Terminator. There's... There's that famous speech Kyle Reese does about it. It doesn't sleep. It doesn't feel remorse or pity. And it will not stop ever until you are dead. I love these villains. I I think there's been a bunch of Terminator analogs. And I've literally put Terminator into season one. <laughs> I like the unstoppable robot machine that you can't negotiate with. It's a very different playing field having something like a Jason type villain in a tabletop RPG. Because... As construct of it being a game, it's like, okay, there's stats, they have numbers, I can defeat them, right? Wrong. You cannot defeat them. You better figure <laughs> something else out real quick, because rolling dice ain't helping you against Jason. He's gonna come back. Right. You can be mm -hmm. easily swayed by movies and people's natural reactions for story's sake in a novel. They run. People run all the time in movies, and but yeah. in D&D, &D, people are going to fight. You, you, you're you like, ah, oh, I am unleashed. And everyone's like, yeah, you are. Let's kick his butt. And you're like, no, 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 no. This, this is, <laughs> this is level ready. one. You are seeing on the horizon the bad guy of level 20. Calm down, everybody. <laughs> mm -hmm. Put, put him on the initiative tracker. I'm going to take him down. <laughs> exactly. Like, And something they do in video games is they have your character start running, and then you enter kind of a quick time event sort of thing where you're already running. Crash Bandicoot does this, right? You're already in motion when you're running away from the thing, mm -hmm. and you continue that motion. Sure. So if you want somebody to begin the running, you can sometimes add in like an avalanche or some sort of destruction of the building that gets that into their heads. I think a great example that's, that's not tip. like the Terminator because the Terminator just shows up and he's already unstoppable. The Lich from Adventure Time keeps coming back and he's not a constant force, but they can't defeat him. Another strong tool you could take from video games do this a lot and I guess movies do too, is if you have something that's overwhelming and unstoppable and you don't want your players to fall into the classic TPK blunder with that, just show the unstoppable thing first or tell tales of the unstoppable thing. Like, show it getting shot by a shotgun and having its organs blasted out and it's still walking around and your players should hopefully get the hint like, mm, I don't think conventional weaponry is going to be any help here. Oh, I got this. Your wizard unleashes his most powerful spell and he shrugs it off. He wipes his shoulder and it's like... I don't, that's my most powerful spell, guys. I don't have another level six spell. I had an enemy like this in a game once. We're going to talk about this later, but it was kind of like the thing. It was this big amorphous blob thing that effectively they couldn't hurt. It just kept regenerating and it ended up going pretty well. And I asked for feedback for it later. And one of my players said something real smart. If something is effectively immune to damage, just tell them not to roll damage. 
Just say, yeah, it hits, don't roll damage next person's turn. That way they immediately get the hint because he was like, you know, I spent like four town rounds flurrying and blowing this thing and he let me roll damage and it looked like you were writing something down when in reality I was just like, I'm not really oh. writing anything. Yeah. I, I might feel like I might, I might feel a little bit robbed if my GM did that though. They'll be like, why'd you let me roll? It's interesting to compare that to the thought of making players roll damage against an illusion. Because then you're mm-hmm. actively tricking them into thinking they're making progress. Mm-hmm. Here, you're right. Like it's, I think there's a a block as all of us are kind of having as DMs here going, no, no, no. The players they they have to be confused. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think you're right. I think that's a very smart choice to just keep that ball rolling. I mean, if they operate differently than what is expected, well, then the players shouldn't do what they always do. They normally roll damage. This is abnormal. You're not rolling damage. Now it's going against the expected rules. You have to do something very different to get it through their heads. I accomplished this with an obvious name and to make a mechanic of a battle. It was called the Regenerator. They had to escape a um, fort and this thing was chasing them and they could do damage and like sever a leg or do enough damage that he has to spend two rounds regenerating to allow them to get to closer to the goal line. Every once in a while they'd have to stop, fight other things. He would catch up, fight him to delay him to get out. I'm just now thinking of it. Dead Space did this with the... They may even call them regenerators. Maybe I cribbed the name. I don't remember. But those things, it's like you you did shoot them so that you could run away better. But you knew you were never killing them until the end. It was very well communicated. You fought one by itself. It came out of a box, which kind of made it feel constructed and special from the other monsters. They let you blow all your ammo on it. And then after you escaped from it, they gave you back all that ammo. They made it very clear that this guy will be returning nemesis style and you should continue to run. That's one of my favorites. I'm just, we didn't add to the list, but I'm just thinking about now, Mr. X from Resident Evil 2, the T-00. He was in the, the B part of the game. He was in the black trench coat, the big tall guy. You'd kill him, and if you killed him, you got rewarded by getting an object off of his body, but you could always just run away because every time you killed him, he'd come back later, many times surprising you and scaring 15-year-old Caleb's little pants off. For as being as straightforward as this kind of a villain is, it does lead to some interesting story moments where sometimes the solution to defeat him is to trap him. So you try to figure out how can we trap... How We can't kill Apocalypse, but we can trap them in the time dimensions so that we don't have to worry about him anymore kick that can down the road and it allows you to sort of work together with your enemies and other people who might not work together because now he's threatening all of us yeah we the necromancer and the party were fighting over this thing here but this guy's threatening the whole world so we've got to work together and you get that the the cool story moments of the uneasy alliance and one of my favorite things is when you get them to fight the villain yeah we we lured jason into this room where now he has to fight freddy Woof. Yes. Thank goodness. Those are cool. If you're willing moments. to play the long, long game, there's a great trope you can use with the space super prison, where basically you defeat the bad guy by calling upon a higher force. And at some point during the battle, when they're almost defeated or weakened, that higher force shows up, kind of grabs them and sucks them into another dimension. And then games and games later, you end up in that crystal prison and walking among the many cells, you see that villain mm. locked inside. Wait, and then, of course, the whole party goes, he's not dead. And then, you know, you can bring him back. It's a good way to bring him back. Sure. I like that visual. I like the idea of trotting my players through a prison of all their old villains. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> Where are we? Villains don't necessarily need to be sentient things. They can be forces of nature. A hurricane, for instance, 
is the major thread of the story driving the events. Typically, there's something else that the heroes of the story are trying to achieve, and instead of the villain being directly opposed to them, it is hampering them and stopping them from achieving their actual goals. And there's a bunch of different ways to do this. Jurassic Park, the dinosaurs, I think would be an example of a force of nature. They're not intelligent. They don't have an agenda. They're just dinosaurs. They're there, and the heroes are trying to survive. It's Sharknado. It's not a sentient tornado. There's just sharks inside of it, and it's in the way. I think Sharknado, a seminal piece of media <laughs> and creating good moments. Good example. Just waiting on them to do the stats for it. Quality. You know? Got to put mean, out that adventure. They wouldn't have made three Sharknados if it wasn't That's a, a good, good film. Point. That's a good point. <laughs> You've defeated yeah. me with your logic. This is a great archetype for a story if you have someone to mess with, like a scientist or a druid. In particular, the, a volcano going off causes all the wild animals on the island to get a little nuts, and then you're messing with your druid by having normally good animals attacking them, and extremely violently, because they're afraid. Uh, you also, I mean, just movies in general, the sentient storms, twister, things that sort of veer off their normal path to chase the heroes. Sure, sure. You know what? I had to look it up, double check. There's five shark names. Wow. <laughs> the most recent one, global swarming. Uh, I get it. <laughs> I just need to see that chainsaw scene again where he flies into the shark's mouth with the chainsaw. <laughs> My favorite example of a mind, a mental kind of villain is Pyramid Head and basically the entirety of Silent Hill 2. It's a very symbolic game. There's a lot of symbolism in the way the enemies appear and pyramid head has become the figurehead of like he's just a big bulky scary guy that they throw into random movies because he's big and scary and iconic but that's not actually what he's supposed to be in silent hill 2 the original game he's from he appears that way but then as the story goes on you learn more about you know what does it mean to be in this foggy place that pyramid head actually represents a lot about the main character's insecurities and is actually some construct that is meant to mentally torture him and not just show up and be like, I got a big meat cleaver, swing, swing, rip your skin off, wow. Yeah, Silent Hill 2 would be the first thing I'd have someone play if they were doing a one-on-one -on -one campaign. It is probably the best solo story in terms of like monster legitimacy. I feel like mm -hmm. I've just vomited words in no particular order, but like. <laughs> but I understand it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I get it. It was so cerebral. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Gerbit Head is like a construct of his desires, and he's missing his wife, so he has to fight like double lady legs. It's, it's such an odd, odd game, but it just. Everything about it works, and there's no question as to why. Well, maybe the door monster. There's like a, a frog, like stuck inside of a door, <laughs> and I, and you get to the the water house. I don't. I can't read too one. much into that one. Yeah, they yeah. Can't I don't all get be that hits. one. <laughs> <laughs> you can't knock them all out of the park. <laughs> Are you not happy with seven out of ten home runs? <laughs> I won't make this into a side. Tangent on my favorite game ever, or one of my favorite games ever, Silent Hill 2. But it's the only video game that I actually had to stop playing because the atmosphere of dread just got to me. I, I wasn't, like, scared or frightened or thought there was someone hiding in my bed. It was like, I'm just kind of depressed. I'm going to stop for a while. I'm going to go out in the sun, <laughs> eat an apple, some fruit and vegetables. I want to feel better. <laughs> oh, you know what? Inception. The the crazy lady in his dreams. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. She'd be a good, good example. Because, like, uh, like, some of these. Wasn't like, his I wife? 
Yeah, yeah, it was not his as a wife crazy lady, but <laughs> trapped inside. It wasn't his wife anymore. Maybe listen for us who are married. Crazy, <laughs> yeah, lady is a good it was like a projection of her or something. It got complicated, you know. It's complicated. That's the point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I put Patrick Bateman here, but yeah, that's not quite what we're going for. And even you had Tyler Durden, which is a fantastic example. Uh, not just a crazy carnage man, an actual like mental force. Mm. I think Tyler Durden would be very difficult to pull off in Pathfinder. Alrighty, tabletop RPG. May, again, maybe a good example of something for a so a one-on-one campaign kind of thing. Yes, I actually think you you really hit the nail on the head with that last example of his wife, though, because that's it's really it's it's truly affecting the story, and it keeps he's stopping himself, but you actually put a face and a figure to him stopping himself. And for your players, you can probably find something that you know that they care enough about that this can become something mental for them. It's something that really has to be handcrafted for that person that's being affected by it. Pyramid Head was handcrafted by himself to torture himself. The man's wife in Inception was something that was crafted by his own mind. And that's why, you know, you're holding back here because, you know, you said it was your favorite game of all time. But I'll I'll do it for you. That's why it made no sense that other Silent Hills had Pyramid Head. <laughs> exactly. And that's why In we the all movies. went, what are you doing? That's, I'm just, he's just become the mascot. It's like, no, <laughs> yeah. that's not how that works. You can't just throw him anywhere because he's cool. Oh, he's got a cloth skirt and a big metal triangle. That has nothing to do with this girl <laughs> and her mom being trapped in the town. <laughs> I only know Silent Hill from the movie, and I thought he was great. He's visually impressive. He rips off a girl's skin like it was an ascot. (laughs) He does. (laughs) Just going to take this off of you real quick. You don't need this. I don't think that's how skin works. I love that crazy lady. She always does such a good job. The the main crazy woman of the town. Mm -hmm. There is the badass villain. We mentioned Darth Vader at the beginning because that is what he is. He just walks into the room. Every scene is is meant to be. (laughs) Shut up, Christian. Every scene is meant to be impressive when in Rogue One, when the one scene he fought, everyone was just like, oh, amazing. Look at him. How do you stop him? He's so cool. This is this can be really hard for a GM that doesn't get buy-in from his players. When you want it to be really cool and really <laughs> badass, and they're like, and they start making jokes about him wearing get ladies' him. underwear, and you're like, no, <laughs> stop. He's Darth Vader. Yeah, you're trying I, to pose on a hill. And, yeah. and you're pl- unlike Star Wars, where when Darth Vader shows up, everyone's saying like, how's my laser pistol work? Miss, 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 miss. Your players can actually interact with the badass thing, so make sure they're actually badass when they interact with them. And even if they're not, the, the players might end up winning, but make sure that the guy stays badass the whole time. Like, he's still got that flamboyant, like, self-resilience going on the entire time he's going down. He's getting good jabs at him with his words. Like, we were beating him, but he really he's really hitting us hard with his words. They hurt more than the knife. The best way I've found to do this is the journey. And you can have your villain meet up with the players multiple times. And one of the best ways to do it is the Darth Vader sort of thing. Calling across space and time and saying, meet me here. And you can even do, you know, that first destruction. The city's destroyed and the heroes showed up and they're like, traveling, oh, and it misses. And then they go, ah, heroes, you don't know what I'm going to do to this world. Meet me at the mountaintop of such and such and see my plan to fruition. And... Like that builds, and then they're everything about their quest mm-hmm. and everything they follow. The Wanderer from Diablo 2, where you never really interact with him. You fight Diablo eventually, but the rest of it is all part of the path. Oh, he walked through here. That ground is corrupt because he was once here. In season one, we had Phoenix, and the reason my players, they, I asked him later, why did you like him? What was it about him that made him badass? Because, again, it's so hard sometimes to get that accomplished to your players. They said, well, because in the first battle we ever got, he was there, and he took more damage than the rest of us, and he kept fighting. He, he earned his stripes. 
We saw that he wasn't just a special GM character that was just doing all these cool things. His shield got melted to acid. He got his helmet cracked. He got cut. He had to heal. And he was a vampire, so there was a point where like they were going to heal him. And he's like, I can't heal. I'm, I can't take positive energy. I'll just tough it through. I'm used to this. And I guess the examples having the camaraderie of them fighting alongside can help. Seeing him in action. I guess. Gets under your skin. Hannibal Lecter was what I was going to bring up for mental, but that I thought he really made this point the best. Hannibal Lecter analyzes you, gets under your skin, and you don't even know what to do anymore. Yeah, it makes you question your own methods or if you even want to go through with it. I think a great one of these is Bill from Kill Bill. Like, despite everything he's done to you and the whole journey he put you on, do you love him? Is he the best? Is he powerful? I mean, I feel like Slade from Teen Titans kind of has this aspect, too, because Robin's missing a father figure. And here comes this strong character in a mask, Mm -hmm. just like Batman, in a sense, with his own kind of ninja arts. They're very evenly matched in their metal shoes. Mm -hmm. You mentioning Kill Bill, because that one's tough, because that one really, it's speaking to a real world thing of abuse and people staying with their abusers. So that re- a lot of the gets in your skin stuff might really hit some real world points. I got to play in a game where there was a villain that really had this strong theme. One of the players, they had a Sherlock Moriarty thing going on. He was an investigator trying to find this guy. Turns out this guy was actually dead and like was existing in some kind of spirit realm. And we'd eventually occasionally interact with his spirit and it would speak to us, but would really only speak to that one guy. We were all there, but he would completely ignore us. And he wanted to take over that player's body. And there was like this weird borderline homoerotic thing going on where he's like, you're absolutely perfect. I'm going to possess your supple body. It wasn't gay at all, but like it came <laughs> off like that. We- Why do you have to use the word supple? <laughs> like he, we would try to talk to him. And he would completely ignore us. He would only directly speak to that one player and just praise him. Like, you're doing wonderful. Keep going. <laughs> like, no, we don't want to succeed. Stop. It's always great to have those like parts where you're using language in any other context is great, but it's like you're saying that weirdly stop <laughs> the likable villain harley quinn venom harley quinn was made for a cartoon and then became a focus and in canon and in every story in the future every iteration in the future because she was so likable people like venom kyle you added one here i'd really like to hear your thoughts on you added megatron you have another one coming up the old friend which does you know these are all mixes every villain's a mix of a bunch of different traits but megatron constantly has to team up with optimus prime same thing with your vegetas right like you'll often find these characters alongside venom spider-man harley quinn batman like sometimes something's going so wrong that even the bad guy knows it and they have to get together and oftentimes they're old friends they have mutual rivals uh in megatron's case they're war buddies well then why don't we go right on to the old friend the example i had here was magneto Magneto and Xavier is such a good quality example. They're diametrically opposed. They are their arch nemesises, nemesi, nemesis. They're against each other. <laughs> but they're old friends. I love how they actually use that word, how they talk, hello, old friend, when they're face-to-face about to fight each other. That's awesome. They Magneto literally has built his suit to go against powers that Xavier has. And uh, not all villains are bad all the time. Magneto's not bad all the time. A lot of villains have one thing. They do one thing or they have one trait that makes them bad. And Magneto, what what a, what a thing to aspire to, to say, I don't want us to relive the Holocaust because I see the Holocaust happening to mutants. I see that. I can see that happening in five years' time. Five years. You know how short five years is? I can see that happening. And so can Professor X. But he goes about it differently to try to solve that problem. Magneto goes about it in a bad way, arguably a bad way. 
killing innocent people because he doesn't quite see them as innocent. But because they are both after that same goal, they 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 can they maintain this this friendship. They don't want to kill each other. I think when they finally do, it's like such a cosmic event that Onslaught is born. The Old Friend's a really nice one that can happen organically while playing a tabletop RPG because, granted, your campaign mm-hmm. is long enough and the threat they're going up against is dire enough, NPCs or even other players can simply split off on a different path, a different school of thought, and end up becoming the Old Friend, ultimately trying to achieve the same goal, but just doing it in a different, more dire way. Trying to remember her name, the sister to Gamora, who has all the upgrades. Nebula. Nebula. Yeah. She's she's this, but the long run version. I mean, Magneto's always coming back too. I guess these are all pretty characters that are going to be around for a long time. They're old friends, so your character shouldn't just straight up destroy them. <laughs> but you can have a great tragedy mixed with a comedy as these characters keep showing up augmented or resurrected somehow broken each time a little Mm -hmm. more trying to defeat the same characters Mm -hmm. over and over again you know nebula was one of my favorite parts of any movie that she's been in she's she's so cool she definitely fits in the badass category for me she has a great weight to her she shows you know what grimora is capable of personal power spirit Uh, We know she's a great fighter because she's flipping around and picking up giant guns. I think that really shows her resolve, which is very important for the recent movie. Yeah, the fact that she escaped without anyone's help is like such a testament to her. Well, literally, because they go, old friend, just like you're Magneto. Uh, But it is, he goes to him for advice, and it's such a great twist. It's such a break of trust. And Sauron the White, like, it's his his tower. Yeah, it looks evil, but it's in the middle of a forest, right? Like, the transformation of Isengard uh, without... Sauron actually changing his look. And I think that's such a powerful part of it. Magneto Mm -hmm. goes to different lengths at different times. Sometimes they team up. Sometimes he's building mutant islands. Sometimes he's complete crazy. He's going to destroy the world and put the rest of the mutants on the moon or something. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't change his outfit. And that's really important there. You got to make sure you have that connection. Because when you have the, the, the change, like we're talking about with Nebula, you start to twist the character and make them more of a villain, more defeatable, and you'll lose them very quickly after that. Oh, hey, didn't see you there. Christian and I were just shopping for Father's Day gifts. Hey, Caleb, do you think these guys would be interested in joining us? You know, I bet they would. I mean, if they listen to Pathfinder Academy, they gotta be cool, right? If role-playing games are your thing, why don't you guys check out our other podcast, Trailblazers? Trailblazers is an actual play podcast where you can see many of the concepts addressed in this show come to life. Season 2 of Trailblazers has been great so far, and I especially like that you can get into it without any prior knowledge of Season 1. It's definitely a fun adventure, especially if you like mysteries and a dash of cyberpunk with your fantasy. If high fantasy is more your style, then consider giving Season 1 a listen. You can find Trailblazers on iTunes. We've got a bunch of other ways to listen as well, so go to our site tblazer.net for a complete list of the ways that you can listen. So go ahead, grab some dice and join us. All right, Christian, what says I love you and totally didn't forget your holiday and the fact that I remembered yours and not mom's and no way reflects upon how much more I love you than her? How about a mass-produced card with sentiments on it that you didn't write? Perfect. Organizations, gangsters, uh, Hydra from Captain America, any, any, anything called the syndicate <laughs> or the company fits in this category. Have they ever been good guys? Has there ever been a good the syndicate? <laughs> I think these are really important to have, especially in Pathfinder, at a game like Pathfinder where it's like 
balanced around having multiple combats per day. You need to know why there's a bunch of bodies being thrown around, why there's so many bodies opposing you, because there's an organization, there's an entire group of people, there's a lot more where that came from, and you, you can kind of kill them sometimes. We brought this up earlier, uh, Innovative Online Industries, IOI, the villainous organization from Ready Player One, concept being that whoever figures out the puzzles in this virtual world owns it, and it's an economic absolute gold mine it is basically the economy itself so rather than having people of dedicated skill they're just throwing as many bodies at it there's all these people trying to get control so they just have like endless numbers of people just normal people who could join up ioi and be part of this big organization fighting against the treasure hunters the rude guild is probably one of my favorite examples of this where they get into town and there's clearly some sort of large hero organization that protects runs it the wizard tower the hero academy but when you get up to the walls everybody's faceless just like your ioi kind of characters you got to have the mask over them and they mm. don't let you in now eventually you can make that so they're not letting you in because there's actually demons inside and the whole place has gone to heck and back that's a great trope because then you get to run through the whole thing with the aid of maybe one of the wizards telling you about the stuff as they run around very kind of dragon age in that way uh, but they have resources that the characters can't have and that's what makes them so seductive and can make such a great twist like cerberus from mass effect 2 you want to be a part of this organization they give you a really cool ship they give you the best weapons they give you the best upgrades everything you have in that game is cerberus tech and it's better than the previous citadel tech that you had you're giving up so you're selling your soul for it they did bring it back to life to be fair you did owe them a bit <laughs> a bit you made you've made such a strong point that i didn't even consider the resources and then the debt there is the equal this is less of i'm your polar opposite more as i match you in power dark side to superman moriarty to sherlock holmes as we already mentioned bane to batman who is his mental equal and his physical superior in many ways yeah this is my gary you're gary from pokemon <laughs> for those of you who are old anime fans you got shishio from kenshin and as you sort of mentioned too more powerful and that's often a feature of these guys is they are physically better or somehow just above and beyond what that character is capable of, but they have a fatal flaw. And sometimes it's a holdout, like Bane. You know, sometimes the poison's too much. Sometimes you cut the cables. With Shishio, you just had to basically live long enough that he would light himself aflame. <laughs> and sometimes it's used any other Pokemon but, but Pikachu. <laughs> it's not good versus rock type. What are you doing, Ash? Bicycles, man. Anything else? All you need is a bicycle. <laughs> You're not allowed to ride that in here. <laughs> Excuse me? He has an onyx over there. You know how big an onyx is? That's a good point. That's a good point. He shouldn't have been able to use the bike to power a Pikachu. It wouldn't have worked out of the inventory. <laughs> I have a bird that can fly, but boy, is that quite expensive. <laughs> As you stand on a pigeon. <laughs> Working his wings like the pedals. We're getting there. The Stalker. This is Freddy Krueger who has more fun stalking you than he does actually killing you. This is the monster, the creature, the disease from It Follows. It's 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 happening, it's coming, and we need to run away, find a way to stop it, do something, because it is, it is on its way to us. And it keeps popping up. The Fisherman from I Know What You Did Last Summer. Yeah, a lot of these are mixed with other ideas. Do you feel like it's it's important that they enjoy the hunt, or is it the compelling to hunt? When we compare this to, say, The Unstoppable Force, I think it follows Freddy Krueger. They, they all, the, the mummies on this list, they all kind of fit into the unstoppable thing. 
And I think the adding this kind of stalker trait to them is healthy in a tabletop RPG because it comes to the point where if they do win, if they do defeat the players, maybe they don't necessarily kill them. Maybe they're going to save them to stalk them and torture them a little bit more. So you can have this thing that's more powerful than the players defeat them so that they learn that, but without actually causing a TPK. I think it is necessarily that they have more fun doing this than achieving the goal of killing you. They got to enjoy it. The fisherman from, I know what you did last summer, he's not doing it just because he's a serial killer, likes to kill bad guys. They freaking ran him over and then left him for dead. And like, oh, we'll, we'll never talk about this again. So you better believe he had some fun killing the people that did that to him. He wasn't picking random people. He had a vendetta. Freddy Krueger is beaming ear to ear. Yes, he's just, he fits into the clearly evil category. He just likes hurting people. This is just, I like to string you up by your tendons and use you like a puppeteer. It's a lot of fun. And you know what? I like I like the Dream Warriors. I like the guys that figure out they can do things in the dream world. Because if you watch that movie, Freddy Krueger kills them all, even though they all do their superpowered things. He's having fun with it. The list is really powerful in this sort of idea. And even like Final Destination, where there is no real monster, it's just the essence of death after them mm. pulls this off well. It sets a very different tone. Whereas you know Jason's not around because he's not trying to kill me. Death could be right around the corner. He could be scheming right now. Like, there, we have to mm. always be vigilant. The villain with the fatal flaw. He feels so superior to us, but we found the one thing that makes this calm, composed villain get angry. Their giant red eye in Legend of Zelda. <laughs> <laughs> I have the light arrow with the eyes glowing. I'm ready. No. <laughs> the circles in that uh, arcade Jurassic Park game. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> We're ready. The Riddler is a very intelligent man and maybe even could outsmart Batman in many ways. He has a compulsion to leave a clue. He has to prove he's better than you, and in so doing, becomes not as good as you. And Batman exploits that every time we defeat the Riddler. Yeah, this is this is a bit deeper than just that you've built in some sort of mechanic to the character that makes them beatable. Like, I put Two-Face here, but I don't think that's quite on point. The fact that you can throw more coins in the air is just another way to get by him. <laughs> it's uh, the greatest scene in I've, any movie I mean, it ever. It is great, it is great. <laughs> <laughs> and Tommy Lee. Oh my goodness. Tommy Lee it's Jones. so good. I love it. And me. And me. <laughs> so I've never seen somebody overact Jim Carrey while standing yep. next to Jim Carrey. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's so different from everything you've ever seen him do. But one of my favorite, this isn't, I can't think of a character like this because it often is a part of other characters. Mm -hmm. I love the overly fancy man, the, the beautiful villain. That gets his face cut. Mm -hmm. And the fatal flaw is that you ruined his beauty. And now he's nuts. Ooh. Just completely yeah. off his rocker. You broke him. Yeah, that idea that uh, we can't defeat him. No, you can. He's slipping. Azula from Last Airbender. That's a good one. I feel so there bad every go. time you come up with a good point and I don't know the character. It's been me the whole, the whole time, me. <laughs> There's people out there that are like, yes, Kyle. You're right. Yeah, Azula. As wow, I didn't even think <laughs> of that one. Amazing. Well, now it just sounds patronizing. <laughs> good job, Kyle. You came up with a good one. Oh, man, I'm so glad you came on today. In Arkham City... The Riddler gets so upset when Batman wins, and Batman's like, all I have to do is just, I just have to keep being me, and it pisses him off to no end. You must have cheated! That game was impossible to win! How did you do that? Okay, all right, no, everything's fine. Everything's cool. I'll defeat you next time. I've got another plan. Don't worry. I'm calm and collected. And each time he gets just a little bit, a little bit more crazy, a little more unhinged. The villain with the vendetta. Kyle, what a perfect example, Jigsaw. Yeah, but not 
the sort of one-to-one -one, you you pushed me in class and now I hate you sort of thing. Like he is out to stop being full of yourself, believing that you deserve things in life. He he had a tough life and wants to show the world that uh, you should respect. And he does have. it so well, especially in the first movie, being the vendetta dude. But like you said, not being so stereotypical. Like he's like, I didn't put you in this trap to kill you. You were all connected to my cancer and what happened to me. But I'm trying to teach you all a lesson. I'm going to try to teach you what I learned instead of trying to kill you. I'm going to try to help you. You, I'm picking you specifically as you took a big fat dump on my chest. This is the vendetta, but it's it's handled in a much cooler way. One of the villains in one of the games I played with was just a normal dude that was in charge of their sort of task force. And my players naturally, it's one of those things that naturally occurred, where he hurt them in a major way. They went off mission to do a good deed for some slaves and they freed him. And he got pissed. He's like, I don't remember sending you on that mission. And he killed the slaves they freed. From that moment on, my players were like, I don't care what happens to us. Before this game ends, we kill him. That guy's a monster. Doing something against your players and giving them the chance to get that revenge can feel so good for them. And just like the old friend, this is something that can happen very organically through storytelling. Just like how it happened with you, Caleb. There can just be someone that does something so egregious, uh, either on the player or the villain side, that just this connection is formed, this need and want to ruin them. I cry every time I see that moment when uh, Inigo Montoya is against Count Rugen and he says, you killed my father, prepare to die. And that's just such a, a good culmination where he goes, I'll give you anything. And he goes, I want my father back. Well, it, it, it's his, amazing. his phrase of power, too. And in that particular scene, though, it's a comedy. Him repeating it over and over just is, is mm -hmm. chilling. Yep. Stop saying that. The cocky and smug villain, the one that, boy, will your players feel so great when they finally get to slap that dumb smirk off his face. Frank Fontaine from Bioshock 1. Would you kindly? What? It's not working anymore. It's like, yeah, it's not working anymore. Is it, you son of a gun? Is it? I mean, does this involve everyone who you just want to give a good slap? No, I mean, we don't have to put me on the list. <laughs> <laughs> but there are, there are characters that, you know, maybe aren't uh, as involved, but still really embody this, like Admiral Tarkin from the Death Star, from New Hope. You just, he's just such a force yep. in art, and uh, Leia's always arguing with him. He, in a moment of triumph, and ends up going out with the Death Star, a tragic mm -hmm. flaw. Yeah, there's no, he's just so self-confident. You're like, and the best part of that is there's, you're not even trying to convince, and he'll never be convinced up until the point he dies that he's going to lose. The way to prove to him that he's going to lose is just to make him lose. And until that very end point, he doesn't realize it, and then you finally get to twist the knife. That's a actually overconfidence could easily be a part of this uh belloc from indiana jones yes. un undone by his own beliefs sort of like that's actually kind of complicated i'm not really sure like always i'm always one step ahead of you mr jones <laughs> okay yeah well you be one step ahead of me oh yeah, the, yeah the, what is yours is now mine <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the spy the person who betrays the party the guy who we we're mistrusting of this uh Oh, heck with my example. Kyle has the perfect example. Loki. But I think you can also count a lot of switch sides guys, right? Like, I can't remember his name at the moment. Mm -hmm. Rat Trap hated him. And Cheetor wasn't too cool with him either in the Beast Wars. But there was the Velociraptor who switched sides. And they always, everybody always suspected him, but he never did anything wrong. I mean, anybody who switches sides once can become a great catalyst for this. And the best one, I think, is the guy who switched sides from the enemy, the never trustworthy. I had a, uh, based on mm -hmm. Benny from The Mummy, very kind of weaselly, his whole 
gig was that he wasn't magical. He just wore 20 different necklaces that all did different things. Just like <laughs> Betty and the Mummy, going yeah. through all the different necklaces whenever he get panicked. He ended up coming over to my good guy's side, but because he was such a butt, they never trusted him. And every, <laughs> and in fact, at one point, a portal opened up and they comically pushed him towards it. He got sucked in and ripped, ripped to pieces. And that was that was the end of him. The blender dimension. <laughs> and the Kyle. blender dimension. Yeah, it was well before Rick and Morty, but it was a blender dimension. <laughs> they stole from you. Yes. That's actually a really good example. And, and I think there are some tried and true storytelling where it's like, oh, he feels bad now because you trusted him so much and he's been playing to betray you and now he feels bad about it. But I think you could do a lot maybe more interesting things, a little bit less derivative things with this kind of guy. My example was The Thing because the, the whole point of The Thing was who the heck is it? All right. Just all you need to know is that, hey, at least one of you is not who you say you are. Now the whole thing is on fire. Everyone is mistrusting each other. You know what? There doesn't even have to be one of the people actually have to be the thing. But just the idea that there was maybe one of them. People end up killing each other. Things are thrown in the air. But Loki's such a great example of that because, like, in the most recent Thor movie, there's a point where, like, in the other, in the past Thor movies, he would have been tricked. But Thor this time is like, you've betrayed me every time. I was counting on it this time, Loki. Come on. The last category we want to talk about now here is the classic monster. This is the dragons, the mimics, the goblins, the bugbears. When you have these guys in your story, it can a lot of time be the resting point. Oh, all right. I've had to deal with a lot of magnetos and gray areas. And boy, it feels really good to just fight. You know, mimics are bad. Mimics are bad. This dragon is trying to kill me. Let's kill a dragon. I think in video games, this is why we've had so many Nazi games, honestly. But also zombies. It's just, it's freeing. There's, there's no complexity mm-hmm. to it. The zombie's running at you. It's already dead. It's it's eating a, a, a mm-hmm. child. And you're like, oh, well, <laughs> this this is clear enough to me. <laughs> that. But the zombie was someone you knew, a trusted friend. There might oh, be, no, there might be a my cure wife? on the horizon. That's true. There is that. that that's the initial part, right? The, the, the opening bedroom scene with the daughter down the hall who charges you. And I, fe- sure, I feel like that's yeah. a really important bit of this information if you haven't played dungeons and dragons before perhaps you need to run that initial campaign that initial story beat Mm -hmm. where a dragon just wants riches and attacks the town and that's it and you have to maybe even inform players i guess that's true there are people who maybe haven't experienced zombies out there in the world who their first experience be like wait no no that's my friend where the rest of us are just already screaming and firing our guns (laughs) (laughs) we've been through this eight times already i don't care shoot them exactly (laughs) so let's move on from traits and talk a little bit about how we use our villains. So a lot of the examples that we gave are from movies, mostly movies. There was a couple book examples in there as well. Movies, obviously a different medium than a a tabletop role-playing game. Tried to parse out ways that you actually represent a villain when they come in contact with the party, how you actually utilize them in your DMing. And I think the most important thing is the distance of the villain from the party, not in an emotional sense, but more of in a physical sense. It's either the villain is someone very far away. They make almost no contact with the party throughout the game. This is kind of like your Ganondorf. It is an evil king somewhere else who has this entire army, this entire force to throw at you that you never actually interact with, but you know you're diametrically opposed to that person. Pretty easy to write one of these. It's much more social in how it operates. You don't have to worry a lot about the stats of Ganondorf. They're not going to run into Ganondorf anytime soon. You know when they're going to run into Ganondorf, and you probably already have that ready. And it'll be with a cool, overblown sound effect on the N64 going... <laughs> 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 
I was a big fan of the can. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> Learn how to play the organ when your players uh, interact with them. But although the, the villain technically typically has no contact, is very far away, there's still a lot of tools in Pathfinder that this villain can use to interact with the party. Scrying is a thing. Viewing people remotely, basically a remote drone, but it's a spell. The villain can use it on the party, learn about them. Also works the other way around. The party can use it on the villain, so he either has to defense against that, or it can make a lot of interesting role-playing opportunities. I see a lot of GMs get crafty with scrying and kind of just change the way it works, other than the way strictly described, to make more interesting scenes. More like the ones you see in movies, where they look at the scrying sensor like, I know you're there the whole time. Yeah, using mm-hmm. a water or a meat. Uh, as a requirement for scrying it's really cool to just frame the image for your players minds sure. i mean it's so much of what you described is just perfect in lord of the rings the the crows mm-hmm. bugs that might be watching for them of course the ring wraiths that are mm-hmm. hunting them in addition to scrying there's long distance communication spells they cannot basically use long range walkie talkie spells and physically speak and the villain can also possess things there are is the ability to possess summon creatures or even possess other people and engage them it's actually that villain controlling the body but once they defeat that person the villain is still there i saw a lot of cool ideas for dungeons where there's a main wizard at the end he's keep using different spells to engage the heroes at each point and keep learning their weaknesses what they're doing so when you finally come across him he's he's learned from all your you gotta be real careful with this though even companies blizzard uh diablo 3 made a big mistake having that phone be on too much with Asmodan. And it just gets ridiculous at a point when they're calling you up after everything you do. It's like, get, just get mm-hmm. down here already. <laughs> How did you even know I saved her out of that well? Where are you? Don't you have something else <laughs> to running do? You're running an empire. Listen, I don't have to stop you because you're wasting all your time just talking ar- to me. I'm already winning. You missed going. half your meetings today. <laughs> your government's falling apart. Paizo actually does this. I don't think it's a spoiler again because he's right on the cover, but Ruin Lord Karzog. The first time they interact with him is actually just a recording of him. That's like a piece of propaganda recording. And then they eventually get items. And when they put on those items, he learns of their existence. He's like notified that, hey, someone's wearing my ring. What the heck? Who is that? So then he starts scrying on them until he eventually starts, you know, using scrying, speaking with them, sending the messages, possessing people. It's kind of like the quintessential version of this. A one-way communication example of this is you're, you're following the path of destruction. He's not talking to you directly, but look, and he, he burned down this orphanage. This is a dumb example. So other than a no-contact villain, you can have a some-contact villain. Sometimes they are there. They're relatively close, but not usually directly interacting with the party. Or maybe sometimes interacting, but having a means of escaping. This is kind of like your Dr. Robotnik is a kind of a comical example of that, but... He's got this army of machines, and you fight him every so often, but he gets away. More analogous to RPGs in a fantasy setting, something like a bandit lord. Like, you know he's there, he's commanding the bandits in this area, maybe you'll have a skirmish with him once or twice. He's gonna send his bandits after you, he's gonna try to bribe the city guards or some officials into causing you problems. Because they will occasionally engage with the party, you do want to make sure you have a game plan for these guys. They need to have some valid method of escape. Because you can't have enemies show up and then just escape because you want them to. Because cutscenes don't exist and you're really robbing the players of playing a tabletop RPG if you do things like that. And you feel that. You feel like yeah. trash when it's like the, he escaped because the GM yeah. saved it. I think Dr. Robotnik is a probably one of the best examples you could give here because of the robots. There is a limitation to his power. When you destroy his hovercraft, Dr. Robotnik is pretty darn weak. It's mm-hmm. really 
I, I think we've all made the mistake with just a teleporting bad guy. And not a portal. Not, he just, he just poof, and he's gone. There's got to be, like, even having the door at least gives the players some information about maybe a fight in the future will be with portals. Or he has to take time to walk through them and you start to build a rapport. Whereas just being like, pop, oh, that's just the DM being like, and he's too pretty. I'm keeping him for later. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to pay $30 for this commission of art of this guy. He is not dying in this scene. No, exactly. no, no. <laughs> so other than some contact, there are villains who have regular contact with the party. In my example, this would be your Albert Wesker of Resident Evil. He's there since Resident Evil 1, all the way Resident Evil 5, getting in your face, making fun of you, doing dumb neo-karate moves. He's unfair, he cheats, he monologues, but this is a valid thing to have, and I think it's a really fun thing to have. It just has to be handled correctly in a tabletop RPG. Seven minutes. Seven minutes is all the time I have to play with you. <laughs> Pushes up sunglasses. <laughs> I say Resident Evil 5, people take crap on that game. I loved it, and Wesker was a big reason why. He was just so hammy and so fun, and then he was, it was Matrix. It was like, when was the Matrix made? How? What year is it? That I'm fighting Agent Smith right now. Oh, he's dodging my bullets. He caught the rocket. What is <laughs> happening? I don't understand. Resident Evil 5 is the most video game video game of all time. You, you, you yes. trip and you end up driving a Jeep firing gun out the back. Like everything you do in that game is is just incredibly cheesy, but I loved it. But Wesker was fun. He was fun to fight. He was fun to be antagonized by. Having that some con having that often contact was fun. If you have a villain that's poorly designed and you keep having contact with the players, you're just going to be like, they're going to get resentful. Like, oh, c come on. I don't like him. you, you got to really focus on this kind of villain if he's going to be such a main part of your story. It's very difficult to achieve an Albert Wesker type villain in Pathfinder. If an enemy is actively engaged in combat with the party and they aren't obscenely more powerful than your party, there's a very good chance that your players can just completely rinse them. Rolling natural 20s happens. People suddenly making good tactical decisions will happen, and high damage dice rolls definitely happen. So if you want to use something like this, you need to have two major things, and one is one that we already touched on with the sudden contact, and that is a valid escape plan, a mechanically valid escape plan, whether they have rigged a scenario up in such that the players have to now turn their attention to something else, giving the villain leeway to escape because they, they can't waste time stopping Albert, tripping Albert Wesker. They gotta go save these people over here from zombies. If I could give an example for that, in one of my games, it worked out well because my players still were able to outsmart him even though he got away. The guy set up a plan. He had a lot of time to plan for it. And he's like, you're gonna have to choose. He just stole a very, very powerful item for them that was very important to the story. He goes, you can chase me down. I'm just a normal dude. But I've injected your friend here with poison and there's a bomb in your house. You know, your father's house who died. This is the last thing you have from him. So I guess go ahead, choose which which of the three. You don't have enough time to, to, to deal with all three. And then he waves goodbye and runs out the door confident. I know what they're going to pick. Well, they managed to defeat the impossible scenario and save both their friend and the house, which it was kind of designed to only save one. And when they figured out a way to have two, I'm like, go ahead. You outsmarted him. Good job. And uh, he still got away, but they didn't feel bad about it because they still outsmarted his plan and saved two when they he only thought they could save but one. But then Tommy Lee Jones goes, no, no, no. <laughs> Why won't you just <laughs> die? Uh, the other thing you need for a villain like this is just be prepared for the inevitable. Get ready for them to be killed or to potentially be captured. That is a completely valid outcome. They don't necessarily have to get away. 
their death might mean something and might spur more story development are them being captured is a story in and of itself what do they do while captured how do they act it's one of those things where your your players might make you a better storyteller he's on the airship and he get monologues down to the guys on the ground and drops his you know robot dr robotnik minions but one player says i bought a scroll of teleportation Let's just teleport onto that ship and go after him. You could make a really cool, they might, they might have the most amazing encounter ever in sort of mini dungeon up in the sky because he happened to buy a scroll of teleportation and thought to use it at this moment. And it ended up being better than this, oh, you know, defend against the five robots while they attack the town while the town escapes. It can be way better. You, being flexible is all part about good storytelling, and you got to be flexible with the villains as well. I want to talk about how in Pathfinder, when these stories change, one of the stories is, oops, the villain wins. I wanted my players to win. I set it up so they could win, but they didn't. In Pathfinder, and a bunch, almost everything we're talking about here today can apply to any TTRPG, the villain winning isn't always the end. In movies, it's very powerful when the villain wins because it makes you look back at the movie and what the movie was trying to tell you. Because now you realize, oh, this movie wasn't just about entertaining me because I'm not very entertained here at the end. This wasn't just a rash good time where there was an explosion. The, the movie was trying to make a point. And in, in sort of the, the Pathfinder case, instead of having you contemplate what was, what was the extra meaning, now you can change that plot point to now... What, what, what does the world look like now that the villain has won? You roll up a new party. Now you live in a world where the lich had his plan. And now half the world is infected with a necromantic virus or whatever. Or you re-roll a new party and you're picking up where that last party left off and they're going to try to defeat the villain. You still get the joy of continuing the storyline, still trying to defeat the villain without invalidating what just happened. I've done this very cartoony before with a, a villain called the Prince of Time. There are nine different princes. They all had to defeat. Each one was an embodiment of a different kind of power set. And the Prince of Time came in and about halfway through the campaign. And much like a cartoon, much like maybe an X-Men episode, he teleported them all to the future so they could see the ramifications of not winning and saving the world. So I got to have the party defeated and do the whole heroes. Heroes have been dead for a thousand years kind of moment. <laughs> sure. It sounds cheesy, but a lot of times when you actually do it, it's not it's not. No, it's, so it's just like amnesia. Like you say, my character has amnesia and everyone's like, oh, gross, overdone, dude. What the heck? It's not. Tell me, tell me stories where dudes have amnesia. It actually doesn't. Happen. I can't remember. <laughs> Finger guns. But it's true. Like it, the, we, there's many tropes that we all groan at that actually don't happen that often. Or just when you tell your friends, like the story that you had to be there mm -hmm. and they got transformed time. They saw the future. Oh, that's great. No, they really liked it. <laughs> In TTRPGs, it's easier to have the throwaway villains, cultists, goblins, etc. The game is designed to have a lot of combat. A lot of people play the game purely for the dungeon crawl. Dungeon after dungeon, monster after monster, villain after villain. That's the way they like to play. And if you kind of make every villain, if there's 100 villains and every one of them is super special, then in the wise words of Syndrome, then nobody is. <laughs> It gets really lame really quick. You can overdo things very quickly in a game that won't, that sort of naturally wants to have so many different quote-unquote villains or at least antagonists. Though it does give you a chance to try your hand at a lot of different types of villains to so find something that resonates with you and your players. Typically, mindless are the greatest things to pick for this. Golems of any type. Just call it a golem. Doesn't matter. Zombies. Uh, elementals. Most mindless things become very easy throwaway roadblocks to put in your players' way. I think... 
the nature of having so many villains can really help you demonstrate the main villain's power. I knew this before I even really started storytelling. I knew this was a trope and a tool in my tool chest. And from day one, I built a guy that was super powerful that my players were afraid of. And I knew his only other purpose, his only purpose was down the line, I'm going to have a bigger bad guy kill him so that my players <laughs> realize how bad of a villain he is. When you have so many villains, you can do that. Oh my goodness, he killed a Tarask. You know what? Let's give him a little bit of space. Let's back off a little bit. I'll, you know, I can live with him winning. I can move. What? I didn't I didn't say anything bad. No, that was me. This is the continent over there. I'm ready. I'm on the boat. <laughs> well, why don't we round out this episode with a story from each of us about a villain that we've come up against or that we've designed and our thoughts on it. Why don't we start with you, Kyle? Excellent. Mine is that super campaign I briefly mentioned there with the Prince of Time. There were nine princes, and sort of as we just talked, it heart, did kind of go that way, right? The most powerful. Uh, it, it's honestly, it's been years, <laughs> and I've struggled to remember quite a few of them. There was the Prince of the Infinite. He could be infinite in size or infinite in number. Basically, he could be 100 feet tall or split into 100 copies, that kind of thing. This gave my players a lot of focus as they sort of knocked out each prince, and some princes became very throwaway, and they dogged him in the room and beat the crud out of him and that was that and some of them managed <laughs> to sort of go on one was slowly defeated the prince of the undead over years as he became just a torso became a brain in the jar and just kept on coming but my favorite one was the prince of secrets and this was a huge pause in an otherwise very fantasy driven quest game uh, it was a very political game they had to go to a city and convince everyone that this empire was actually evil and the prince of secrets had a book and everything he wrote into the book became real as an illusion, as, a, as an ink monster, basically. So he, would, he was in court, you know, under trial. And he, they asked him if he had any witnesses. And he opens his book real fast, writes down. And materializing out of this ink came a witness to sit down and give the Empire a good story, right? So they eventually... He's got great handwriting. Exactly. So eventually my players end up quartering this guy on his boat. And my archer, my uh, ranger, rolls a natural 20 to hit the book. They finally figured it out by themselves that the book was doing something. He crits the book. The book explodes and everything in the town that was written turns back to ink, including the Dragonborn's meal he had just eaten and every other gift that this prince had ever given. The boats, the embassy all explode and melt at wow. once. As this book is defeated, he goes nuts naturally. He runs for it, summoning this sort of ink golem around him as he tries to escape. And they hunt him down by firing cannons out of the boat into the city. <laughs> and so naturally it went to complete heck and back. And they got kicked out of the town. It was such an organic moment and nothing about him was planned. Just the fact that those were his powers and he was as throwaway as the Prince of Lies before him, who was more Freddy Krueger-esque, and I love that. I, that's one of my favorite villain methods is I've always wanted to do one with, with body parts. Like, you gotta go defeat the Lich's heart, lungs, kidneys, like, and the kidney is, the kidneys, sure. uh, that, that filters, I guess it disintegrates things. The heart, it pumps, I guess it punches things. Like, you just... Let your players right. build the bad guy out of the pieces they meet along the way. That illustration is the perfect example of, of why you don't overplan. You're taking everything that your players just gave you, and you're building that into something. They didn't make that, you didn't make that. Together, you work together. But as the GM, as the storyteller, you had to you had to put that final piece on there. The town melts. The boat melts. Everything melts. 
your players have that aha moment of oh everything was, was it was way. such a great campaign for a very a group of mostly new players to have their first city experience because it was so frustrating it was politics for the first time and rather than being like it's a world every shop is open you can walk anywhere you want open any door you want players like it was very focused in the fact that it was so different from any other part of the campaign they'd done a little over a year ago i i ended uh homebrew like year-long kind of campaign thing one of my players had submitted a backstory and when i say a backstory he had submitted a novel it was like a collective (laughs) 60 or so pages of not just like character backstory but like lore of the culture he was from because it it had been something he had been working on in prior things but i parsed through it all i wasn't going to use all of it i was going to use all 60 pages of his information but what i stuck to was one of their creation myths his culture had a creation myth they're kind of like a scottish celtic kind of group and the creation myth was that there is this giant woman in space named morrigan who is floating around the cosmos just smashing planets for fun and rocks floating around space and eventually after smashing so many she she had seen that one had cooled off and it was earth and there was people on earth and she stopped she's like oh that's neat and has been watching us ever since And that was their creation myth. The sun was like her eye or something like that. So I decided to make basically what was a religious terrorist organization off of their creation myth. Their thought being that, hmm, this woman that smashes planets for fun has taken a momentary lapse in her revel of destruction to watch us. We better make sure she stays entertained. How do we entertain someone that destroys planets for funds? Gratuitous unneeded violence they were the epitome of kill a thousand save a million and the leader of their group was kind of the main villain and it was all kind of comic booky at first she just kind of very much adhered to that thought of only through destruction can we create only through destruction can we persist and the only reason she really ended up being a good villain was organically through their first combat with her she also had a gold sub theme that i won't get into but she kind of outsmarted them they got trapped in like a cathedral with her and i had designed this encounter that she didn't have any lethal capacity she wasn't going to walk up and stab them she was a spellcaster so she mostly debilitated people all of the players simply ended up failing their saving throws against all of her spells i did not intend for her to come off as this huge powerful being but they all simply failed their saving throws so someone's eyes got covered in gold they couldn't see anything the psionic healer got his mind clouded and he didn't consider anyone else an ally so he couldn't heal the fighter type had his hand transmuted to gold so his hand was now locked around his sword and it was more difficult to wield she did all that and ended up leaving because she couldn't she didn't have any lethal capacity she wasn't gonna run up and stab them and that just made it for them they were stuck with these gold curses they had to spend a lot of time figuring out how to get rid of these gold purses (laughs) and the whole time they were like i hate her so much i hate her so much they were just breeding this hate for her and I wanted to go off of that. Hey, John, we can sell your hand to pay for uh, Joe's leg. <laughs> it was That's also great. neat because there's uh, all of her spells have the traumatic meta magic, which means you have nightmares for a while oh, after you fail the saving throw. Nice. So she didn't even have to interact with them. Now they were having nightmares for the next week or so that I had a lot of fun with that. Giving your players nightmares is really fun. Yeah, it is. Um, they eventually raided somewhere that she like lived for a while and they found her Bible. It was a way for me to characterize her and that like it had her own like footnotes on the Bible just to show how much of a zealot that she was. Like she disagreed with her own like things that the Bible said, like this is not extreme enough. Like we should be doing a lot more of this. <laughs> 
It's the same notes I make in my Bible, if we're fair. And, and if they had paid attention, they actually read the Bible, like I actually made a little document for them. The tenets of the Bible ended up assisting with them in the final battle, quote unquote, against her, and that if they used the tenets and like destroyed things that they cared about, it curried more favor with the deity that gave her power. And they, like it was just this really epic moment where the archer like had her bow that like her father figure gave him and she was like i snap it over my knee and i didn't even see that coming because she was an archer that was her only weapon and i was like oh no (laughs) what do i do i thought you would just smash trinkets or something it it ended up culminating to a really great villain it wasn't something that i i really planned for initially just how it ended up turning out and rolling with the punches of what the players expected i want to talk about how i use villains for my example I like to say something about the real world with my games. On the season summary pages of the wiki, I wrote down the theme of each season. And I think a lot of storytellers aren't just trying to create something that's fun. They also have a message to get out there. I think that's pretty prolific. And because of this, a lot of my villains are exposing something about the real world. They're what I'm using to do this. Valerian speaks to the dangers of the greater good view, willingness to sacrifice the few for the many. I could just say that this is a temptingly seductive view, and when people are confronted with it, they feel conflicted because it's such sound logic, but the real-world effects of it is so harsh. But I prefer to tell that by example, and was able to explore a more in-depth look at that worldview by making it a villain in a TTRPG. Seth... And the cat folks speak to the dangers of retribution and classifying a group of people based off of the actions of some of them, whether that group be a small group or a large group. I could just say Nazis are bad, but we've we've dehumanized them. And I wanted to put a very sympathetic person and face and cause under that banner to say that message. So I have to have relatable, believable and non-hyperbolic villains in order to do this. Valerian is loved and he loves He does the right thing a lot of the time and genuinely wants the best for the people, his people and the world at large. Often he'll make sacrifices of his own self in order to accomplish things in humane and just manners. It's because of this that when my players brush up against him as a villain, they actually ponder what exactly they're up against and their position on these matters. Seth and his people are Native American analogs. He and his people were good people, enslaved, and in some ways driven to the edge where they made the decision to side with their captors' enemies, no matter how evil they were. You could see how Seth, who every interaction with humans he had across the campaign ended very poorly and with real pain and real evils being perpetrated, would develop the worldviews that humans are not capable of not doing evil. So what's the solution to a problem of a race that only has the capacity to do evil? Well, it's a final solution. It's not easy. Valerian is the product of a lot of storytelling and villain designing mistakes, a lot of trial and error, and Seth and his people were the result of an in-depth study of the approaches to Auschwitz that I spent half a year doing in school. But these make rewarding villains and storylines for not only my PCs, but my players. I'm using the closest thing to real examples to illustrate real evil. If you have a story to tell about real evil that we see in our world, these kinds of villains are the best way to illustrate that, in my humble opinion. Haven't you ever wondered how a woman who is abused by her husband doesn't just leave him and get her kids out of a terrible situation? Well, if you know the answer to that, 
having your players see why in game instead of just having to explain to them in a conversation can be much more convincing and straight up get the message through better. And maybe that's a message that's on your heart to say. Native American is part of my heritage and because it was close to me, a message about them was on my heart and villains were the best way for me to illustrate that message. Ever heard of the saying, there are no more new stories, everything's been told before? If you make any character in a TTRPG, you'll quickly learn from any one of your players that there is a Dota or League of Legends analog and that you're not the first person to come up with that are you idea. Ash? That sounds like Ash. I'm pretty sure you're Ash. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not delusional. I understand that the story I told with Seth and the Catvoke is making the same point that Magneto is. Magneto was treated badly by a group of people and now believes all those people are evil and capable of such a thing and need to be stopped before they do it again. And he even freaking sees it with people being scared of mutants. It's right in front of his face. That didn't stop me from telling the story I wanted to tell. It was a little different and certainly done in a different way. A lot of times I like to take villains from culture and insert them into my own story to say something slightly different. One of my NPCs was Helter Skelter. He was a Hannibal Lecter ripoff. I wasn't trying to tell the same story as Silence of the Lambs or any of the stories he's a part of. I thought he would be good to have in a story to help psychoanalyze my PCs and I thought it would be plain old fun for the party to go up against him. I think there's a real space in there for just cribbing villains. But I think there's this weird thing where like, it's sort of best if your players aren't familiar with him already, though. If your players know Joker, it's like, hey, look, it's the Joker. But if it's their first time ever seeing a Joker-like character, like, whoa, it's an amazing character. Even if they know of him, just because you've seen Star Wars, you know who Darth Vader is, it's much different to be in the perspective of someone who's actually has to oppose a Darth Vader-like figure. Nothing's more interrupting than uh, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter soundtracks, right? Like, ev- everyone's down with the music, it's nice and generic, and then... Ding, 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 ding. And you're like, and everyone's like, hang on. <laughs> well, we're not playing D&D. It's Harry Potter, everybody. I'm pulling out my wand. Okay, so, all right. I mean, to that point, okay. you can't stop it. You're going to put on a playlist. Harry Potter's going to play. You're going to have your characters that people go, oh, hey, that's just like, just like, sure, why not? And move on. <laughs> you can use it to your advantage, though. I've had the Terminator dun, 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 dun. And that scared my players because <laughs> they just know what that's tied to. We had an opportunity to speak with F. Wesley Schneider, co-creator of Pathfinder, and get his opinion on topics we're discussing here on the 300 series. Let's see what he has to say about how to create a good villain. We're doing an episode on creating good villains. We know you're good at making villains. You've written comics, countless campaign materials, and we even had a whole episode on your book, Bloodbound, as we talked about, where we talked about one of our favorite characters was Considine, even <laughs> though he was sort of a side villain slash ally of the party when he wanted to be. Uh, he sort of outshined the main villain for me and even had a hand in defeating him in the, in the climax of the book. How do you come up with a villain and what's maybe a tip you can give our listeners on how to create a good villain? There's no such thing as a villain. There's only heroes everybody's a hero. Every story is told from a particular hero's perspective, and the opposing hero is the villain in that regard. Every villain is a hero. Unless we're talking about, like, serial killers or, like, Godzillas or whatever have you, and even then, arguably, every one of these characters thinks that they are doing the thing that is right or is getting a just revenge. They're going to be the ones that are the only people that are bold enough to do the thing that has to be done. The best villains, to my mind, are the ones where you can be like, 
Magneto was right. I mean, that sort of thing. Like, of course you get these giant sort of nefarious archetypes. It's it's hard to be like, oh, Sauron with his legions of orcs and all of that was Mm. like, you know, give Sauron a chance. (laughs) But... I am not the world's biggest Tolkien fan, so I could not tell you all of the background on Sauron and whatnot. But characters who have a backstory, that have a history, that have a reason for doing what they're doing, that puts them at odds with the hero, and that makes them just to their own mind, those are the the most fun villains for me. Um they're just they're just characters they're just people and they want to be just as impactful and as extreme and as as world changing as the heroes often do more often than not it's the heroes who are fighting for the status quo which sometimes you can make the argument that that's the more cowardly route it can be a lot of villains are definitely my my favorite parts of of rpgs of novels of you know stories in general yeah a, a good villain is sort of the most important part of the story for me thank you for your thoughts on that yeah well kyle thank you so much for joining us it is always a great pleasure to have you here you even gave us a little bit extra of your time we really appreciate it and i absolutely love every episode that you're on and please know that you have an open invitation to to continue to come on if you have a topic or something that interests you please allow us to be that venue for you to talk about it every time i do an episode with you i go why did i talk so much i should have shut up and just let kyle talk more he's always has these insightful things to say oh thanks for having me this was great i love talking about villains it's great that i'm finally kind of back into dungeons and dragons with my own show there will be dungeons on the frog pants network it I've been so busy with uh, Heroes of the Storm that getting back into D&D has just been, it's been delight. And thanks for hosting me here and having having the chance for me to geek out with y'all. Your character is the best part of that show, I don't mind saying, because I, I don't have to make anyone happy. I don't have any connections. It's the best part of that show. He's hilarious. Every interaction. I'm at the point. Oh, so she's a girl then. I was on the floor. <laughs> hilarious i'm i'm absolutely going to steal your oh, dude and play him one day a dude, guy just Burrell, like him. the lizard man is is a is a delight to play and i had no idea he would go as far as he has into it <laughs> he's just so great if you're into heroes of the storm or enjoy video games in general check out amove.tv and i do a particular show over there called into the nexus if you enjoy uh, referencing mobas in your own tabletop games <laughs> Well, thanks again for coming on. Thank you all for listening, and class is dismissed. Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. For other great RPG podcasts, visit our website, tblazer.net. Want to get in touch? Email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at tblazernetwork. This episode was edited by Devin Tonnell. This is Johan Martins. Thanks for listening.